Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. But our wholehearted support of the IGA and its processes does not mean uh, that we uh, support the premise of uh, the case brought forward by South Africa. Okay, so the Prime Minister today finally, uh, I guess, responding to this uh, case that's been brought brought before the International Court of Justice by South Africa. Uh, The candidate disagrees with the premise of South Africa's argument, that being that Israel is somehow guilty of genocide and how it's prosecuted its war against Hamas. Uh, I think that's that's the bare minimum of where Canada needs to be. I think there are many reasons to be concerned about this case, about how this important institution is being politicized this way against Israel. Many double standards, especially in terms of actual genocide that's being overlooked and Israel being pushed to the forefront here. Uh, but it does sound like Canada is is opposed to this case. And it seems to be some divide within the Liberal caucus uh, over this case, with some speaking out against it and others even uh, speaking in support of it. But look, again, these are all very important issues. The, the issue of genocide, the, the concept of never again, institutions like the International Court of Justice. What's the risk of all of this being you know, made into a, a mockery? What interesting op-ed this week from our next guest. The headline, South Africa is inverting reality by accusing Israel of genocide, that it is Hamas that should be on trial here, not the Jewish state. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Erwin Kotler, International Chair of the Royal Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, Canada's first special envoy on preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism, and of course, former Minister of Justice and Attorney General for Canada. Professor Kotler, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, and good to speak with you. Well, it's likewise, uh, under unfortunate circumstances, to be sure. Um, so the, the case is moving forward. We, we got some semblance of where the government stands today. First of all, what, what did you make of that? Well, I, I, I think uh, what I make of it is that the Canada is expressing its support for uh, the ICJ as an institution mm-hmm. um, and thereby expressing its support for uh the independence of this UN-related uh, institution, at the same time that um, it says that, you know, what is happening is not, uh, does not rise to the level of the threshold of, of, of genocide. But, but I think uh, the, the statement is, uh, doesn't take full account of, of uh, the dangers in this uh, proceeding. And the reason I say this is because, as you mentioned, that uh, genocide is really uh, the, the crime of crimes, the ultimate crime against uh, humanity. And what is happening here uh, in this case in South Africa's application is the weaponization of uh, the Genocide Convention anchored in what effectively is an inversion of fact and law, as, as you mentioned. I, I've looked at the not only South African uh, application, but I've actually watched uh, the hearings. And, you know, I, I find it a, a astonishing. You would think that the Israel-Hamas war began uh, when Israel 
uh, exercise not only its right but its responsibility to self-defense. It began uh, on October 7th, and and what's known as the Black Sabbath, and it began, in effect, with Hamas uh, committing the most horrific of not only war crimes and crimes against humanity, but uh, acts that are constitutive of, of, of genocide in the manner in which they not only engaged in uh, acts of mass murder and rape and mutilation uh, and uh, uh, desecration of the bodies, but their glorification of what they were doing, the filming of it. And that uh, is marginalized in uh, South Africa's uh, application. And what is totally ignored in that application is that that very act of October 7th, that those horrific acts of genocide were themselves anchored in Hamas's founding charter, uh, which calls for the destruction of Israel and the killing of Jews wherever they may be, a standing incitement to genocide, which is a standalone breach of the Genocide Convention, and that it is continued from 1988 until October uh, 7th, and we've had ongoing uh, war crimes and crimes against uh, humanity being uh, committed, and there have been six ceasefires uh, along the way, and Hamas has broken uh, every ceasefire until, uh, you know, the horrific acts of October uh, 7th, and even those are still remaining because the hostages are a looking glass uh, uh, that are still being held by Hamas into those horrors, and Hamas has repeated, people don't realize, repeated during the months of October and November, it's continuing intent to eliminate uh, uh, Israel, and it's continuing intent to target civilians. So this trial is uh, uh, an effect of, of Israel's taking place while it is Hamas that is engaged in a standing incitement to genocide, not because I say so, but because they say so, right. anchored in its founding charter and then given expression in its actual acts. So what does it say about the courts or its legitimacy that these other matters aren't being dealt with, that instead it is Israel's response to all of this that is the focus and, and the rest of this, Hamas's crimes and intent being overlooked? Well, I think, you know, it, it certainly, in, in my view, uh, in effect, uh, undermines the entire legitimacy of South Africa's application uh, to the court. One of the problems with regard to the international court is that the uh, judges who sit on that court are all uh, representatives of, of uh, you know, a particular country that nominated them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of those countries, of course, uh, have judges who are reflective of the ideology of their countries. And therefore, it's, it's not an independent or uh, democratic a cast of mind. You know, you have judges there from uh, Russia and from uh, China, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm a little concerned uh, about. Yes, the ICJ is an independent institution, but then when one looks at the members of uh, some of the members of that court, um, th- th- that gives me some pause. But the particular thing is the manner in which you know South Africa, in its own application uh, to, to the court, uh, basically 
as I said, not only an inverted fact and law and that kind of uh, Orwellian weaponization of the genocide convention, but it omits, you know, uh, material facts, like I mentioned, or even on, on the matter of um, describing the, uh, and, and there are uh, de- uh, terrible uh, scenes of death and devastation in, Can- in, in Gaza. Mm-hmm. And, we ha- and every uh, civilian that is killed, Palestinian or Israeli, is a humanitarian uh, tragedy. But what it ignores is the responsibility for that. Uh, Hamas's uh, use of human shields, where it has turned the whole of uh, Gaza into one big human shield, where it fires rockets uh, targeting Israel, rockets still being targeted as, as we speak. And every rocket fired, as PLO themselves said, is a war crime. Uh, when you have thousands of rockets fired, those are... The crimes against humanity. And so they're being fired from civilian in infrastructures, uh, which also stores the weapons, which also houses uh, the uh, Hamas uh, leaders. And, and basically, they have turned Gaza and they have turned Gaza civilians into human shields. There's no reference uh, in South Africa's uh, application uh, to the court about the human shields. Therefore, you you can't uh, understand what is happening in in this uh, war uh, when you uh, leave that out. And as you know, Jean Paul said, uh, and others said, you know, it, it, if you take things out of context, you can hang anybody. And so, there's uh, the, the Hamas-Israel war is taken out of the context of October seventh, and that is marginalized. It makes no reference to what happened in uh, from Hamas's. Find, uh, founding until October 7th, and it makes no reference as to why civilians not only are, are killed in Gaza because of the use of human shields, but in fact you have a situation where Israel seeks to minimize uh, casualties, how tragically uh, they occur, and Hamas seeks to maximize uh, casualties because this furthers their purpose of demonizing Israel, of demonizing uh, the Jewish state, and thereby this becomes a kind of prologue uh, for its own campaign of disinformation and thereby destruction of the state of Israel. As far as South Africa is concerned, I mean, it's, it's certainly sad to see uh, what's happening in, under this particular president, given, you know, I think the, the hope that uh, post-apartheid South Africa would be a, a global leader in, in human rights and international justice. And, and I know Jewish groups in South Africa are very concerned about uh, what's been happening there. Uh, the fact that Vladimir Putin was welcomed to South Africa last year, uh, the president of South Africa ignoring this ICC arrest warrant for, for Putin. As you point out in your piece, in fact, South Africa's president recently just welcomed uh, the the leader of the RSF in in Sudan, complicit in the genocide in Darfur 20 years ago, and the concern about what's happening there now. What are we to make of South Africa's very blatant hypocrisy here? Well, it's it's you know it's it's mocking uh, the, the legacy of, of Nelson Mandela, you know, who uh, really emerged after 27 years in a South African uh, prison to uh, become the founding uh, president of a democratic, egalitarian, non-racial South Africa. And it was uh, 
Mandela, who was a strong advocate, I want to be clear, a strong advocate of Palestinian rights and Palestinian statehood, mm-hmm. but also a strong supporter, uh, by his own words, of Israel's right uh, to uh, live in peace, and even spoke of the, you know, Zionism and Jewish people's right to self-determination. So. I think Mandela, if he were alive uh, today and were president of South Africa, would not have gone down this road. It wouldn't be Mandela uh, welcoming uh, a, a Putin or welcoming uh, a there from uh, Sudan. And so I think that's a, 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 a really disturbing uh, phenomenon and development. The one uh, encouraging part, if I may say so, is that the judge that South Africa nominated to sit on the ICJ, uh, Justice Masaneki, a former deputy president of the Constitutional Court of South Africa, a, a former cellmate of Nelson Mandela. I know Justice Masaneki well. Uh, he is a person of integrity. He actually gave the Mandela Lectureship for Human Rights on behalf of uh, our Rao Wallenberg Center uh, for Human Rights. Uh, so he is somebody that uh, I'm hopeful will will take a, a an independent and and, and principled uh, stand uh, and not reflect uh, his government's uh, position so that that is something that i do hope might happen I mean, this all undermines, I think, our attempts to address these other situations, like what's happening in Darfur or Uyghurs in in China or in in Syria or elsewhere. But it doesn't feel like this is going to do anything to accomplish the cause of peace in the Middle East uh, and and what to do then in in a post-Hamas Gaza. What is your level of optimism uh, moving forward that, that something good can come of all of this? Well, you know, uh, Secretary of State Blinken, when he just recently visited the Middle East, made an important point. You know, he said that uh, we have to remember how all this began on October 7th, but then made a second statement, which uh, had been ignored. And he said on October 8th, it could have ended there Mm -hmm. if Hamas would have uh, laid down their arms and returned the hostages. There would have been no, uh, you know, Hamas-Israel war. And I think now we have to go back to that approach and say what we need at this point is uh, the release of the hostages, the disarming of, of uh, Hamas, their surrender of the leadership to the ICC. That would put an end to it right away. And if they cared about their leadership, um, uh, if they cared about the Palestinian people, that's what would happen. The tragedy here is they're not only holding uh, 130 Israelis hostage, they've been holding their own Palestinian people hostage. And so Hamas is not only an enemy, if you will, of of, of Israel, it's an enemy of the Palestinian people, it's an enemy of peace and the international community, you know, which has not held them accountable since 1988, should finally hold them accountable. And the way to do so is not through this ICJ case, where they're not the ones being held accountable, but it's Israel being held accountable. And that's why I say it's, it's, it's turned uh, history and, and law on its head. Definitely. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Professor Kotler, thank you so much for your insight on all of this. And I really do appreciate you making some time for us here today. 
Not at all. And good all the best, speaking sir. with you. Likewise. Take, Take care. care. Right, bye. Uh, there you go. That is Erwin Kotler, of course, former uh, Attorney General, Minister of Justice uh, for Canada. He is uh, International Chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Much more at RaoulWallenbergCenter.org. And uh, Professor Kotler was also Canada's first special envoy on preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism. And, and I share his dismay and, and disgust of what's happening here. It's just not right. Certainly connected to what's happening with Israel and Hamas. We've seen these uh, Houthi rebels in Yemen, backed by Iran, targeting shipping in the Red Sea, commercial shipping traffic. Now, they say this is in response to Israel's offensive against Hamas. It's hard to see how there's any connection. There's obviously a great deal of concern about uh, the fact that uh, commercial shipping is being disrupted. A lot of that shipping is now going all the way south around uh, the tip of South Africa. So that's uh, adding time, that's adding cost uh, to to commercial shipping. And that can certainly have some economic consequences, Uh, not to mention the obvious danger uh, of these attacks. Uh, So yesterday, the U.S. and Britain launched some missile attacks on Iranian-backed Houthis. Canada, one of the countries providing non-operational support. And this is what the Prime Minister had to say about it today. Uh, we've had, obviously, many conversations uh, uh, at the officials and at the uh, uh, leadership level on the importance of uh, protecting the international rules-based order. Uh, we all have real concerns about uh, the escalation that the Houthis have demonstrated in attacking civilian and commercial vessels in the region. Uh, we uh, ensured, and we work as Uh, All our partners did ensure that the uh, targets and the strikes were as uh, precise and and specific as possible in terms of degrading uh, the Houthi military capacity to continue uh, to to, uh, attack uh, and uh, interdict uh, commercial traffic in the Red Sea that is carrying uh, humanitarian and uh, and important uh, uh, economic goods for the world. So that was Justin Trudeau this morning. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev also asked about it. Look, the uh, Houthi rebels have been, are, are basically a proxy for the Iranian government. They've been interrupting tr- vital trade routes, uh, endangering allied soldiers uh, and civilian sailors. They're operating basically as a, a Tehran-backed pirate outfit that is uh, threatening international security. And a conservative government believes that uh, the strikes are necessary in order to counter this threat. Uh, We also believe in banning the IRGC. We find it incredible that at a time when our allies are forced to strike, rebels that are backed by the Iranian regime, Justin Trudeau allows terrorists who are an official part of that regime to operate legally and with impunity on Canadian soil. A common-sense Conservative government will ban the IRGC. All right, so joining us for more of these airstrikes yesterday, where this whole part of the situation goes from here, very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, Christian Leuprecht, professor of the Royal Military College and at Queen's University. He's also editor-in-chief of the Canadian Military Journal. His latest book, Security, Cooperation, Governance. Professor Leuprecht, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Feels like it was building to this, but uh, was was there anything surprising to you about what happened uh, yesterday or last night? Well, there was some significant pre-negotiation happening. I mean, both uh, uh, the United States and the United Kingdom made it pretty clear what was about to happen. 
Um, and what's a little concerning is, of course, that deterrence is not working in this case, that mm-hmm. the Houthis are not backing down, uh, that to the contrary, it looks like the Houthis are angling for this fight. Uh, they probably believe that, on the one hand, there's not much left in Yemen to bomb, uh, and on the other hand, that they were able to sustain themselves uh, against a significant and, and lengthy bombing uh, campaign by the Saudis, um, and they have a lot of sympathy in the Middle East, so they're going to try to make this as, uh, as, as far as they can. What's your sense of, of why they decided to do this or what prompted this? I mean, there's clearly a connection to what's happening with Israel and Hamas, a connection to Iran. But, but where did this whole crisis come from? Yeah, so I think this is uh, the timing is also interesting because, of course, Friday is the holy day in uh, um, in the Middle East. It's when people go to prayers, um, and so uh, uh, the the uh, this sort of so so it's I think part of what probably uh, um, the West wanted to, at least the United States and the United Kingdom wanted to test here is how many people would go onto the streets uh, in the Middle East about this particular bombing campaign. Um, and to see sort of uh, sort of how the reaction is going to be, because much of this is, of course, about stability in a highly volatile region. And this is why uh, the bulk of countries in the region, with the exception of, of Bahrain, are not behind the coalition, because uh, they are clearly worried about their own stability. And look, I mean, these countries are not democracies. They are authoritarian regimes. Um, and so they're all worried about their own people and their own people going on the barricades. I think this is sort of part of what's happening. Uh, the other is, of course, that the United States and the United Kingdom, there's a UN resolution with regards to the Straits. The UN resolution clearly instructed that the Houthis needed to stop these attacks on ships. Uh, and in response, the Houthis launched the largest attack ever. Um, and so uh, I think the inference to draw from this is that the Houthis were sending a clear signal that they weren't going to abide by anyone's rules but their own uh, and uh, the people who are backing them. And uh, that uh, the United States and the United Kingdom felt in part that it was time to send a message. Uh, there's also, of course, political calculations here. The Biden administration wants to avoid the oil price going up ahead of the uh, presidential election, both that has an implication on the American economy as well as on the global economy. And so I think there's a sense of a better rain this in sooner rather than let it drag out. Right. I mean, clearly the Houthis realize they're making themselves a target. They're inviting this kind of a response. So perhaps, maybe as, as you alluded to, that that's what they were angling for. Yeah, I mean, look, Yemen has been a failed state for 50 years. Uh, this is a country that has been completely devastated by war. Um, it goes from massive humanitarian crisis to even worse humanitarian crisis, and a country that, of course, has long been ignored uh, by the world. Um, and it's become an interesting domino in the grand strategy that Iran is playing in the region. Because if you think about the areas that Iran sort of now has considerable sway over, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon through Hezbollah, of course, the most heavily armed non-state actor in the world today. Um, And then if you go down the Red Sea to Yemen. And so what Iran is demonstrating is that uh, they are the veto player in the Middle East. Nothing happens without Iran and that Iran can cause serious political um, uh, military and economic problems, not only for the war, uh, for for the region, uh, but for the world more broadly. And I think this the timing here is not accidental. As the United States heads into uh, um, a, 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 a presidential election that is going to have great import uh, for the coming years.
What about Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries here? I mean, Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned, and then they've clashed with these uh, rebels in, in Yemen before. But and certainly they, they don't want to see shipping disrupted in the Red Sea, I, I wouldn't think. But it seems as though they're they're maybe staying out of this or they're, they're very quiet about the whole situation. Yeah, this is part of, I think, what the Houthis are trying to do, put put the regimes in the region, in particular Saudi Arabia, in a real predicament. So Saudi Arabia has its most important port, commercial port, Jeddah, on the, uh, on the Red Sea. Um, and Mohammed bin Salman famously uh, said, you know, the, the, this is going to be a, a relatively short campaign in uh, Yemen uh, when the Saudis started in 2014. And uh, uh, it's turned out that the Saudis were not able to achieve their objectives. And so, of course, this has emboldened the Houthis uh, and it's also emboldened Iran in terms of backing the Houthis uh, because it gives them geostrategic control over now not just one, but two of the world's most significant uh, shipping straits, um, uh, the uh, the Abab Strait and the, uh, the Hormuz, uh, Strait of Hormuz. Uh, so I think Iran is trying to send a clear signal that uh, when it comes to the Middle East, um, it is a player that has to be reckoned with. But at the same time, the Houthis have their own interests at play. Oman has been trying to sort of negotiate sort of a quasi-peace settlement, um, and the Houthis are trying to demonstrate that uh, basically if they don't get what they want, uh, they'll, just, uh, uh, they'll just keep playing veto players. The Houthis have are probably a much better military organization than they are a governance organization. The areas that are controlled by the Houthis are really in terrible, terrible shape. So it might also be an effort by the Houthis to continue to find uh, these external adversaries to distract from their own inability to govern properly for their own people. Right. And, and given that, it's unlikely these airstrikes yesterday are going to, to put an end to all of this or be the final word. So should we expect to see more of this and potentially maybe a further escalation here? Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. This was, I think, sort of the litmus test of what the reaction was going to be locally in Yemen, regionally by populations, in particular by Saudi Arabia, but also by other countries um, within the region that are terribly afraid that this might cause instability, domestic instability for uh, them. Uh, and it's not clear that uh, with, uh, pure, uh, with military might, uh, the Houthis are going to be, uh, to be contained. So we'll see whether this strike took out enough of the Houthi infrastructure. It's highly asymmetric. Um, look, we're, we're using weapon systems that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to try to destroy drones that cost a thousand bucks or less. Yeah. And so I think the Houthis also believe that uh, that, the, that the Western alliance simply has, on the one hand, too many other fish to fry, and on the other hand, simply doesn't have the capacity. Um, and, of course, if they can ultimately um, sustain themselves against the United States, which they've always made out to be the great enemy along with Israel, like, of course, many other uh, non-state actors in the region, then this would be a massive political win and massive political win for Iran because they would be able to show that uh, they are the group uh, that was able to ultimately rein in uh, the U.S. power within the region. So I think this is a considerable gambit by the Houthis and by Iran about who's ultimately going to prevail. We'll see where it all goes from here. Appreciate your insight as always, Christian. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. It's been my pleasure, Rob. Have a good afternoon.
Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a chilly Friday afternoon. Uh, home heating uh, very much on people's minds, uh, I would imagine, uh, right now, ensuring that that's there for you and getting through this this cold snap. Uh, there was some cost with home heating. I mean, natural gas prices uh, were, were you know a bit softer in 2023, uh, but there's a lot of demand right now. And, you know, on top of that, of course, uh, we do pay the carbon tax on home heating. Now, the government would would point out, rightly so. I mean, there are rebates that come along with the carbon tax, too. But that's a cost that does appear on your home heating bill. It's applied on home heating. Not all home heating. Of course, the government exempted home heating oil uh, from the carbon tax a few months ago, and that set off uh, quite a controversy, quite a firestorm, and quite a debate around uh, whether home heating should be subject to the carbon tax. Saskatchewan uh, said, look, if you don't provide some fairness, we're just going to stop charging the federal carbon tax on home heating in Saskatchewan, which they've now followed through on. And it's a bit of a convoluted scheme that involves Saskatchewan's Crown Corporation that provides home heating and the Saskatchewan government and uh, the legal requirement to remit the carbon tax back to Ottawa. So that's likely headed to the courts. But uh, Alberta doesn't have a Crown Corporation. Is Alberta kind of stuck? Or if we really wanted to address the cost of home heating, would we have some options? It was an interesting uh, piece this week uh, up at thehub.ca. Uh, what Alberta could do if it was interested or intent on providing some relief on the cost of home heating. Uh, joining us uh, for more is the author of that piece, uh, Trevor Toome, professor of economics, University of Calgary, research fellow at the School of Public Policy. Trevor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I mean, I guess it's more of a legal question, but, um, you know, your, your thoughts first of all on what Saskatchewan is doing here and, and where this is all likely to go. Well, when Saskatchewan announced its move to no longer collect the carbon tax on all sources of heating fuels, natural gas, and interestingly, electricity as well for those who use it for home heating in Saskatchewan, uh, it was clear that they were thinking of doing that just through their crown corporations, right? They are government-owned entities and they can decide how they operate, including whether or not to charge the, the carbon tax. And of, of course, that raises questions around abiding by federal laws, what the penalties would be for directors of these crown corporations in particular, uh, or, or the minister, and, and that's what they're currently sorting through uh, right now. But other provinces, and Alberta in particular, looked at that and Premier Smith kind of mused that um, she kind of wished that we had a crown corporation to maybe <laughs> pursue something similar. And, and so what I wanted to unpack in this piece is, you know, the interesting legal issues aside, what Saskatchewan has recently signaled is that they may very well, and I suspect they will, pay the carbon tax, but out of the government's general revenue. So it won't appear on people's bills, but the federal government will receive what is owed to it based on the fuel that is sold. So the carbon tax will still be paid by the government. And that's an option that any provincial government can turn to uh, if they're willing to use some of their public funds to effectively provide bill credits of an amount exactly offsetting the carbon tax that are charged on each one. Right, so it becomes basically like a subsidy. Exactly, but yeah. a subsidy that's that's different than the rebates that we get. Or, or Alberta had bill credits of you know roughly fifty dollars per month that Premier Kenny uh, established some time ago. You can imagine those credits would be set uniquely for each person, exactly equal and offsetting uh, the carbon tax charge that appears on each bill, effectively eliminating the effect it has on consumers. Uh, now, of course, that would 
potentially be quite expensive, depending on the depending on the province, depending on how much fuels are covered by it. But if Saskatchewan is really turning to its own um, provincial purse, if you will, to cushion the impact on consumers, well, any province could do the same. Yeah. You know, one thing, by the way, I wonder about, because there were a few years there where the federal carbon tax existed, but it didn't apply here because we had our own carbon tax. Now, that ended in 2019. But if we still did, if we had a carbon tax that was considered you know, comparable enough to the federal tax, wouldn't it be easy then for Alberta to just say, okay, well, we're going to stop charging our own carbon tax on home yep. heating? Exactly. And and that could be done basically instantaneously. The effect, though, would be that the federal government would then review the provincial carbon tax system and deem it to be below what is considered the benchmark system. So there there is a minimum coverage that provincial systems must have in order to avoid having the federal backstop kick in. So it would it would take months to do, but at some point then the federal government's own carbon tax system would be established. And that's sort of the stick, if you will, that would keep a provincial carbon tax system from uh, eliminating the carbon tax on certain fuels. But in provinces like Alberta, that are already under the federal backstop, there's no more sticks left uh, federally. So, uh, of course, there are legal questions here as well, putting aside whether we pay the carbon tax or not. Some take the position that anything a province does that frustrates the federal law right. might itself be uh, not allowable. I mean, so we would, have, we would have court fights over that that would last for years, but uh, there's no other mechanism for the government to prevent kind of a tailored energy subsidy, if you will. So if Alberta wanted to go this path, because I suppose it would be simple enough to just send a rebate checks to people, but that wouldn't really be related to home heating. So what would Alberta have to do uh, to basically pass that subsidy via the energy bill? Yeah, well, like the bill credits that we all received on our bills uh, from Premier Kenny, there, there were arrangements made with uh, utility companies. And in this case, the government would be paying utility companies who would then pass that through to individual consumers in a way that was tailored to the carbon tax on each of their bills. And maybe there might be some amount you'd have to pay the utility companies in order to do that, you know, because there would be costs on their end to administer it. But it would really just be uh, going to the utility distributors that currently exist as a government, and there are not that many, and, and making arrangements with them. Uh, to have these credits incorporated into our bills in the way that we already have done, so that such uh, such experience already exists. Right, and and I guess you know, current kind of the clever twist to that is that the carbon tax is still being collected, so it wouldn't affect the rebates. Exactly. Now, and this is is something else I explore in the piece. Uh, this could be pretty expensive for provincial governments. And sure. now, effectively, yes. this is not enriching the federal government. Those dollars go back in the form of rebates to individuals. So it would effectively just be the province paying the rebates, uh, if you will, to individuals in some in this silly kind of convoluted uh, scheme. But provinces could also change certain aspects of the income tax system to effectively claw back some of those rebates, you know, changing the basic personal amount that we all get on our on our income tax bills. So th- there, there would be ways for the province to not only cushion consumers from the carbon tax itself, but also claw back some of the rebates themselves as well. 
So as an economist, I know you you know you and, and others have certainly been, I think, somewhat chagrined at how the you know the the principle or the concept of carbon pricing has yeah. been undermined. I mean, so as, as an economist, I mean, how how would you view this kind of an approach? Oh, so I know it in the piece that it is kind of silly. It, it was really a thought experiment to illustrate that if, if other provinces do want to follow Saskatchewan, they don't need a crown corporation to do it. Right. All the tools currently exist, and so provinces can, if they want, put their money where their mouth is. Now, I do tend to favor uh, carbon pricing as a way to very efficiently lower emissions. Now, now the problem is when we're you know, creating all sorts of exemptions, especially when those exemptions are not motivated by real policy rationale, but in the case of the federal government, clear political calculations to exempt the fuel in a region where they have concerns around their future prospects. So uh, one can be a supporter of carbon pricing and yet still be very um, disappointed in the federal government's decision here. And therefore, you know, provinces pushing back on a clearly inappropriate federal decision is something that, you know, maybe one can get on board with. Well, your piece that's up at thehub.ca, as mentioned, uh, Trevor, always appreciate it. Thanks for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. Take care. All the best. You too. Uh, it's Trevor Toon, professor of economics, University of Calgary, research fellow of the School of Public Policy. So kind of a thought experiment uh, he lays out in this piece that if Alberta really wanted to do this, if, uh, you know, and you get the sense that maybe Daniel Smith is worried that Scott Moe's kind of one-upped her here by saying, look, we're going to give uh, Saskatchewan homes a, a break on, on the carbon tax on home heating because they have this crown corporation. And it's weird to hear the Alberta government or the premier sort of wishing we had a crown corporation. That's not a very conservative principle. And, you know, she's talked about doing that as well to generate electricity uh, in the future to get around some of the uh, net zero targets. Uh, I don't know that that's the path we want to go down. But as Trevor Toon points out, look, Alberta uh, could pretty easily uh, provide bill credits equal to the carbon tax charges on all utility bills within the province basically give Albertans a break on the carbon tax on home heating. Now, it would have been a lot simpler to do all of this if Alberta had just kept its own carbon tax and said, okay, since the federal government's going to carve out an exemption for home heating, we'll do that too here. And now maybe Ottawa would claim, no, you guys can't do that. Your your carbon tax isn't uh, comparable enough anymore. But I think Alberta could pretty credibly argue, well, hang on a second here, because you guys did this first. You carved out an exemption. So how can you criticize us for carving out an exemption? In, in other words, it would still be pretty comparable. But that's not the reality of the moment. So is it something the Alberta government should consider? Like, there would be a cost to this. And, you know, if, if the Alberta government's going to find ways of providing relief to Alberta households, there are other ways we could do that, right? Uh, lower taxes, lower other taxes. Go back to the gas tax holiday, for example. I do want to get into off the top here this afternoon, though, the uh, state of childcare in Alberta and what's happening now that the Alberta government's getting more involved in childcare. Now, this stems from the deal that uh, Alberta signed with the feds. The federal government wants childcare to be a certain way and dangling some funding. Uh, that Alberta took. Alberta signed that deal. So we're getting closer to an important deadline here. Child care providers in Alberta have until the end of January to sign the new agreement. But the terms of that uh, are, quote, giving serious concerns for financial viability moving forward for a lot of private operators. 
Uh, so joining us to talk about some of the concerns and what's changing here with childcare in Alberta, very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, Crystal Churcher, uh, Chair of the Association of Alberta Childcare Entrepreneurs. Uh, Crystal, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. All right, so let's talk about this deadline first of all. So what happens after January 31st? Um, after January 31st, if you have not signed into the new um, affordability grant agreement, you would lose access to not only affordability grants for your families in your centre, but wage top-ups for the staff that work in your centres um, and subsidy uh, programs for the low-income families that you're, you're hosting in your centres. So it's it's a real tough decision here because the clock is ticking, but, and we'll get into it here, there, there are a lot of concerns about this whole setup. There's a lot of concerns. Um, there's been a lot of concerns since 2021, or sorry, 2022, when we signed into this agreement. Um, unfortunately, those concerns have really gone unheard um, across the province, and now we're in a situation where operators are frustrated and fearful and you know, really looking at another 15-month agreement that doesn't support quality child care, doesn't support the operators that are providing the care, or really the staff that are working in these centres. So it's a very tough decision for all operators, not just private operators, but non-profit operators um, as well, to make in the next few days. So the serious concerns around financial viability moving forward, because as part of the letter notes, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. part of the issue here has been the delay in government funding. So can that, is that something that can be addressed, I guess, if, if that's more forthcoming from, from the Alberta government? Or what are some of the other concerns here? Um, I, I mean, absolutely. I think the funding model could be addressed. I'm actually shocked that um, we've been voicing this concern with the pro- pro- uh, the province, the provincial government, for two years, and, and they've refused to change the funding model. Um, you know, BC has a similar agreement, and in BC, they they fund their childcare operators the affordability grant portion before the first of the month, and they reconcile it at the end. So it's absolutely a solution that is um, you know on the table. And, and again, I think that's why operators are frustrated. Is these are not. Um, huge solutions we're asking for. These are not, you know, major time-consuming processes that have to be changed. We've had two years to figure this out, and and here we are. It seems pretty disruptive. I mean, the letter talks about these cash flow problems this creates, and right, it means a lot of these businesses have to rely on loans and and the debt that that comes along with that just to make ends meet because of the, the unpredictability or the delay in actually getting that funding. Right. I mean, you're, if you're just going to look at it kind of uh, on the three issues that we're facing under this transition agreement or interim agreement that we're, um, we have on the table right now, the funding model is the main one. I think that not all operators are facing this, but enough operators are that it should be, you know, top priority for the government to address this. Um, you're asking operators to essentially fund a government program at their own cost. Right. So not only are we you know, financing this for the government out of pocket and carrying the interest um, that goes along with that. But we're also being gifted by the government 3% increases. Um, You know, there's a 3% increase on the table as part of this agreement. When inflation costs have been substantially higher over the last two years, um, you know, to ask people to freeze their fees under this agreement, which is what has happened. Your child care operators across the province have had frozen fees since 2022. We've been given a 3% increase by parents in 2022 and another 3% increase by the government in 2023. 
um, when, you know, the Bank of Canada inflation calculator um, states that inflation's been 15.2% since 2022. So I, I really think that, you know, parents need to look at these numbers and ask if this is really the type of quality that they want for childcare. If offering these people that work with your children and are dedicated to childcare 3% when inflation is 15.2 um, and expect them to front, you know, 85% of their revenue 40 days so the government can offer these programs um, is fair. There's also some additional costs this imposes because under this new system, so now there's all kinds of new requirements uh, uh, with regard to paperwork, the, the audits that come along with that. That all comes at a cost to businesses, doesn't it? Massive cost. I mean, other provinces have administrative costs written into their agreement so that the operators are reimbursed for the cost of this program. Alberta has chosen to not um, even acknowledge that there's administrative costs. Um, I know for my center, we've calculated it to be about $28 per child per month to be able to offer these programs to parents. And I've been carrying that cost for two years already. And here we are with an agreement that's asking me to further carry those costs for another 15 months. So, I mean, that's a substantial uh, amount of, of money that your centers are being asked to put forward without getting back and while having frozen costs, you know, frozen fees for two years. Um, I think that, you know, all operators would be, you know, understanding that these are public funds that are being spent on these programs and the money needs to be accounted for. And if that's a financial requirement of the program, then I think the province should be paying for that program. I know that um, the minister has released some, you know, promotional material lately around what the government is offering and and all of the great things they've done um, for operators in the past two years. One of the numbers that's being um, put forward is money to to essentially pay back some of these financial reporting costs. And the number on the table right now is 27, or sorry, um, $12.4 million, which stands, sounds absolutely, you know, amazing. Mm-hmm. However, you know, there's 171,000 childcare spaces across the province currently. And if we took that number and divided it, you're looking at less than $72 per space. So for my center, that's offering me about $2,000 back on, you know, thousands of dollars I've spent every month over two years. So it's really not enough. And I actually find it quite insulting that we're at this point with our our province. You know, we really tried, are really open and trying to work with them to, to bring solutions for families so that this program can be successful and having numbers put forward like 3%, um, and essentially $72 per childcare space is, is either we're really disconnected and not understanding the same cause or, um, you know, I, I just don't know how we'll ever end on the same page here. Well, yes, what's the concern if this isn't addressed? Because it seems to me that, you know, even though we're trying to address affordability, that we might end up with fewer overall childcare spaces if, if a lot of these private operators just can't make a go of it. Absolutely. And I just want to point out that this is not just private operators that are finding um, this agreement difficult and won't be able to stay open. This is nonprofit operators as well. So while these issues started out as something, you know, as a private operator issue, um, over the last two years, they've really just grown to an issue across the sector. And our association has seen such an increase in membership from the nonprofit sector because they're just finding 
they're facing the same issues that we are. And, um, you know, I, I think that we're going to see childcare centres closing in 15 months. Um, whether they choose to opt into this program or not, I think that we're going to start to see a lack of quality in our childcare centres, reduction in staffing, reduction in programming, because money has to come from somewhere. And this program is not allowing operators to increase fees. We're not even paying operators back for the cost of, of administering these programs. So every month, your operators are seeing a, a larger financial loss. And I don't know where they'll ever get that money back to continue to offer the programs that they are right now. So I think you're going to see you know, a number of centres start to close over the next 15 months, if not sooner. But I think as parents, um, you should be really educating yourself right now as to what the true impact is of this program across the province and the country um, and what it's going to mean for you as a family and for the quality of care you're going to be receiving. Now, so a few changes the letter talks about, but but the one big one that mm-hmm. the Alberta government was willing to consider was to sort of change the, the model in, in terms of where the funding is going, right? Instead of funding right. centres directly, fund the parents, allow the money to go through parents. Why, why would that make such a huge difference? Um, well, then you're not funneling it through your operators. So they wouldn't be required to do these, you know, very expensive financial audits. I mean, centers are paying upwards of $30,000 a year to meet these financial requirements placed on them by this agreement out of pocket. Um, so the, that would go right back to the government and the parents. Um, parents would also be protected in the choice of childcare. So right now, with this money going to only centers that are choosing to participate in this program, parents are going to only be able to access these supports that are really meant for them in specific programs. So you're going to start to lose choice as parents because your center, your first choice um, that you choose for your family may not have access to these programs after the end of the month. And then you're going to be forced to look at either sitting on a wait list or, you know, finding another option that may not be the kind of childcare that you're wanting for your family. So um, I think that you're going to see choice impacted on parents um, as we move forward in, in the next 15 months. Well, the clock is ticking on this uh, end of January deadline. Uh, much more in the meantime, abchildcare.org, the Association of Alberta Child Care Entrepreneurs. Uh, Crystal, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rob. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.